Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days there, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. They went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Fathers, we consider Your Word this morning. We know there's a wonderful spiritual dynamic that the more we look at Jesus, the more we find ourselves following after Him, the more we are patterned after Him. And so we ask once again, Lord, that You would fix our eyes on Your Son and help us to see Jesus before us, to emulate Him, to place Him as the model, the pattern for our lives. And we ask Your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, to teach us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, 2014 has already been branded the year of the biblical blockbuster in Hollywood. Perhaps you've read about these things. Uh, Several blockbuster movies are slated to hit the theaters this year. Hollywood has finally figured out that it's time to cash in on America's remaining undercurrent of faith. That there is a large faith community who will pay good money to see faith-based movies. And so Hollywood is, is taking the nod, which I guess is a good thing. The first movie coming out is 2013's epic miniseries, The Bible. You know, that miniseries drew a weekly viewing audience of over 11 million viewers. And its finale drew 13 million. So they're taking that miniseries, and coming out at the end of February is the movie Son of God. And it's based off of that series with additional footage that they've added to focus specifically on the life of Jesus. So they're going to combine all this seen and unseen footage and make this into a major motion picture. End of February comes the Son of God. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Actually, I prefer a little earlier, but you know, I'll wait if I have to. Second one that's coming out is The Redemption of Cain. A new take on the story of Cain and Abel. The Redemption of Cain, directed by Will Smith, that Bible scholar. (laughs) Coming in March is the movie Noah. 
Noah, which features Russell Crowe as Noah. I've really never seen that before, that kind of a representation. Anthony Hopkins as Methuselah. And Jennifer Connelly as the ever-popular Mrs. Noah. You know, only known by that name in Scripture. Finally, we have at the end of the year, should we tarry all the way, make it all the way to the end of 2014, Ridley Scott's movie Exodus will round out the year with Batman, uh, sorry, Christian Bale playing the part of Moses. <laughs> I was reading over that thinking about what's coming in, and at first encouraged. These are, these are movies that, that might, uh, might be interesting, might draw um, a large number of believers to theaters to, to watch, could be good. And yet I began to think, but the Bible in the hands of Hollywood scriptwriters. Hmm. And the question that came to me is, is who is it this year that's going to educate you in the Word of God? Who is going to be your teacher? Who's going to encourage and inspire you with God's Word in 2014? For a textbook, I would suggest the Bible. And for a teacher, I point you to Rabbi Yeshua. I point you to Jesus. That if you have the Bible and you have Jesus, then you have all you need for life and godliness, as Peter told us in his book. But Jesus' teaching career began at a young age. So we begin our studies in 2014 with a teaching story here from the Gospel of Luke. Let's go back and begin. Let's take this verse by verse through the passage before us today, beginning in verse 39 which is more of a conclusion verse to the previous verses, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Now Luke skips some of the adventure of Jesus' birth story, probably because Matthew already had it covered. So it wasn't important for Luke in his writing to double up on what Matthew and perhaps Mark had already shared. But let's clarify a couple of things here, because Luke does quite a skip from verse 38 to verse 39. We have Jesus presented in the temple. Well, let me back up from that. He was born in Bethlehem. We covered that, I think, in depth last month. Heralded by angels, visited by shepherds there. Eight days later, Jesus was circumcised according to the law. Thirty-two days after that, His parents brought Him from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem, where, as we talked about last Sunday, He was received by those two senior saints, Shimon and Anna, who were so excited to see Him. And Shimon even saying, I have seen now the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. I am released to go home to be with the Lord because He's, he's kept His promise to me. But from that point forward, 40 days after Jesus' birth, Luke jumps all the way to Nazareth. Well, that's a number of years, my friends. Matthew fills in the in-between. Over a year later, while still in Bethlehem, Jesus is visited by the Magi. Matthew 2.16 says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, note that, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So according to the time determined from the Magi, two years old and under, Jesus could have been as old as two by the time the Magi came to see him in Bethlehem. Anywhere from from birth to two, but probably between one and two years old, they're still in Bethlehem. They must have settled down there. But when they learned from an angel in a dream, Joseph learns of Herod's rage against his son. They took flight and, and escaped to Egypt. 
until Herod's death, which was now in 4 A.D. Then, finally, they returned into the land of Israel, and Matthew tells us in chapter 2, verse 22, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in the city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. It's marvelous. All of the prophecies of Jesus' birth that you can't imagine how they would work together. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That there would be Rachel weeping for her children. That he would come out of Egypt. That he would be called a Nazarene. How do you put all this together? And Matthew and Luke together show us that in a marvelous way. But after all of this, they finally return to Nazareth, and that's where Dr. Luke again picks up the story. He's the obstetrician who deals with Jesus' birth, but now he's the pediatrician who deals with Jesus' childhood. He's the only one. He's the only one who gives us information between Jesus' birth and his adulthood in the only verse that really details childhood and in the only story that points to the end of that childhood. Understand that for the first 12 years, this is all the New Testament reveals to us about Jesus. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's it. You get one verse. What happened in Jesus' life from birth to age 12? And that's all the Bible gives. Well, I read a story somewhere where Jesus made clay pigeons and they flew away. Where's that? That's in some of the apocryphal writings and some of the extra-biblical writings. There's all kinds of bizarre things that people came up with to try and give some uh, substance, I guess, to the early childhood of Jesus. But it's not based in biblical truth. So all we really have is verse 40. Again, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the Spirit of God was upon him. One verse in the New Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures actually give us a little more. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 tells us a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I was asked recently, Rick, do you put a comma between Wonderful and Counselor? And I do. Because he is both Wonderful and Counselor. Oh, he's a Wonderful Counselor, but he also is Wonderful. Simply Wonderful. Well, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, tells us this about the childhood of Jesus. It says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And Isaiah basically takes us from birth all the way to the second coming of Jesus, and the millennial reign of Jesus, laying out the whole picture. But I read that verse to tell you this. Understand that from the moment that the Holy Spirit conceived the child in Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus. What does that mean? 
It means the Spirit of the Lord resting on him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord are all elements, listen, elements of Jesus' childhood as much as his adulthood, as much as his future reign of glory. Isaiah 53 verse 1 tells us who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him, which tells us this about the childhood of Jesus, that after a remarkable, supernatural, and miraculous birth, he grew up a typical Jewish boy. Common. Nothing about him that would attract attention. He was just Joseph and Mary's son in Nazareth as far as the townsfolk were concerned. As far as anybody understood, he was just a good Jewish boy. Nothing to attract us to him. I think about that and I think a little bit about what Isaiah said prior to this, that the arm of the Lord would be his. And and I wonder who could have imagined the arm of the Lord being the size of a skinny 12-year-old's arm. You know? And yet as a 12-year-old, Jesus had the arm of the Lord. But even before that, the Bible tells us something wonderful, and again it's here in verse 40, that Jesus grew up. Note that. Jesus grew up. Don't miss that. Don't jump to the age of 12 without recognizing that Jesus grew up. Which means when He took on flesh, He accepted everything about it. God made flesh accepted infancy, childhood, growing pains, adolescence, adulthood, all of it. He didn't just come to earth, a baby, and then, bing, immediately a man. He went through all of the pains, all of the struggles, all of the difficulties that anybody goes through. So that He could understand us? No, so that we could understand Him. And so that we could know beyond the shadow of a doubt we have a God who gets us. See, there could be someone sitting here this morning who says, my childhood was an absolute catastrophe, a complete wreckage. How could anyone understand that? Well, Jesus grew up. He gets it. He understands. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is a complete washing of the people's sins. How does He do it? He becomes like us. Jesus grew up. Jesus was a kid. Jesus skinned his knee. Jesus broke his skateboard. Jesus did what kids do. He was hurt. He would have had the tears of childhood, the laughter of childhood, the fun, the difficulties, all of it there. Fully God and fully human. We can be assured His understanding extends all the way from birth to manhood. And with it, all that comes with being human. But the question often arises, well, okay, when did Jesus know He was God? That's the big question people like to ask. I don't know why that's so important to know. When did Jesus know He was God? Was there ever a time He didn't know that He was God? Did He look up from the manger and roll His eyes with every coochie, coochie, coo? (laughs) 
Don't you know who you're coochie-cooing? <laughs> See, that's what I would say. Did he eyeball neighborhood bullies and think, oh, if only you knew. <laughs> Go ahead, throw that dirt clod. <laughs> I can call legions. When did Jesus' humanity catch up with his divinity? The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And that upsets people, that idea of him increasing in wisdom, which means there's a point at which he was less wise than he would be later. Understand this, the word increasing in the Greek is pleruo. Pleruo in the Greek, P-L-E-R-O-O, if you want to jot it down, means, listen, means filled to the full. Filled to the full. Read it that way. The child continued to grow and become strong, filled to the full of wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. When? Throughout his childhood, wisdom and grace were there, were present in and on Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 40, in the King James translation, says the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, so he was a surfer. <laughs> Filled with wisdom. And that's a good translation. Filled with wisdom. Filled to the full. Pleruo. And the grace of God was upon him. John tells us in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. So this much I know. And we can go round and round about the moment that, that the human understanding of the child grew to the point that he knew that he was God. We can talk about that, but we really, all we can know for sure is this. The wisdom and the grace of God were evident in Jesus long before the age of 12. Seen in him growing up. I think there's more evidence of that we'll see further down in the story. But know this, Jesus Christ from conception forward was fully God and fully man. And the Bible is clear about that. I know there's a lot of different beliefs, even in Christianity, about that. But the Bible states clearly, fully God, fully man, from conception forward. I believe that, and I think the Word is clear about it. Now, verse 41, pick up the story. We now jump to age 12. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up according to the custom of the feast. So we see here a couple of things. The devout faith of Mary and Joseph continues. They've done everything according to the law. This simple Jewish couple followed the book. Circumcised on the eighth day. Presented in the temple on the fortieth day. They did everything they were supposed to. And now at twelve they're going up, as was their custom, every year for Passover. It was required of all the Jewish people. It wasn't an easy trip. To take you know, your kids and your family and up and head down to Jerusalem once, at least once every year. But they did it. But it's also important to note this. In the Israel of Jesus' boyhood, 12 was the age of accountability. 12, not 13, 12 was the age of responsibility. Now the bar mitzvah in Judaism happens at the age of 13. Then the equivalent ceremony happened at the age of 12. A 12-year-old boy was, excuse me, was considered a young man. And that kind of changes this story a bit because it's really not a childhood story of Jesus so much as a story of the young manhood of Jesus. 
it explains a little bit why, as we'll see, Mary and Joseph lost track of him on the route home. How could you lose your child, we would say? Well, they didn't. They lost their young man, who should have known where he was supposed to be. He was 12. He was responsible. He was considered a young man. Verse 43. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, that would have been eight days for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. It wasn't unreasonable to assume Jesus would be somewhere in the caravan. He's 12 now. Jesus, we're leaving. Okay, Mom and Dad. All right, let's go. And off they head. And they're not worried about it because he's a young adult. He's a young man. He's responsible to be where he's supposed to be. Which, by the way, he was. (laughs) He was exactly where he was supposed to be. It's just his parents didn't get that. So I think we can cut Joseph and Mary maybe a little bit of slack. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever presumed upon the company of Jesus? Have you ever just assumed He was with you? Only to find that perhaps you left Him back at the church. Have you ever assumed Jesus was there? Taken Jesus for granted? You see, there are those who who think they're in good company because they go to church on occasion. They share a form of godliness, perhaps denying its power. But they're around other churchgoers. And so they believe that everything's good, that they're all covered because they're around church people or perhaps they have church people in their family or perhaps they're they're married to a religious person. So it's all good. Jesus is around here somewhere. I'm sure He's in the caravan. But there's no relationship. There's no presence. There's no awareness and that's why people will wonder sometimes if Jesus is really there or not. People will cry out, God, where are you? When if you're walking with Him, that's never a question you would ask, is it? Where are you? If you know Jesus, if you belong to Him, if you're not assuming His presence or taking Him for granted, you would never ask that question. You would immediately know where He is with you. As we prayed for Alex this morning, she's not going out alone. Leaving us, yes. Leaving Jesus, no. Going with Him. Because we need to understand this. Jesus would never leave you. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28.20 Hebrews 13.5 He said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. But have you deserted Him? Have you left Him? Find yourself trucking along in the cultural caravan? Well, Jesus is back at the church. Well, Jesus is in the temple. I mean, it's one thing to caravan with that outward form of religion, devoid of real interaction with Christ, absent of the intimacy that God invites us to, the true fellowship. It's another thing to walk in the company of Christ. And that's what He wants for you. That's what He wants for me. He woke me up at 1 o'clock this morning for that reason. I'm convinced of it. It's a little frustrating. He does this to me on Saturday nights from time to time. The wake-up call. I mean, I woke up wide-eyed and ready to go at 1 a.m. Bing! 
and I looked to the clock thinking perhaps it was 5.30, perhaps it was, it was time and I could just roll out of bed. One o'clock? I'm like, Lord! And I closed my eyes and I tried to go back to sleep and it didn't work. And along about 2 o'clock when I looked at the clock again, I think He let me go back to sleep around 2.30. But I've learned something and I didn't come up with this, by the way. In fact, I learned it from Jim Hutchinson. That when God wakes you up in the middle of the night, you take some time and talk to Him. You ask Him why. Well, you think God wakes you up? Yeah, I do. But even if He doesn't, it's a great time to talk to Him because no one else can interrupt you. Cheryl's just over there, snoozing. She doesn't know we're having a conversation over here. Until I turned the light on. She didn't like that. (laughs) But I'm learning. I'm learning of the preciousness of the company of Christ. And that we find those times throughout our day, even throughout our nights, where we can just talk to Him. And where we can honestly say, with nothing else on our brains, Lord, what's on your mind? Lord, what are you thinking about? What's important to you today? The company of Christ. Instead of presuming His presence, some pursue His presence. And there are some ways to be absolutely certain of His location, as we'll see here in the story. Verse 46. Then after three days they found Him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard Him were amazed at His understanding and His answers. If you're pursuing rather than presuming Jesus, note this, number one, you will always find Him in the communion of believers. You're always going to find Him where other believers in Jesus are, where His people gather. That's where He's going to be. And this is something that the world and our culture has misunderstood. I can be a Christian without going to church. Yeah, but, but Jesus is where His people are. So if you want to be where Jesus is, be where His people are. Be around His people because the company of Christ is there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, the Lord said, In every place where I cause My name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So if you are presuming Jesus, if you're feeling absent from Jesus, if you're thinking Jesus is lost and you don't know where to find Him, go where His people are. Join the company. Find Him in communion with other believers. He said in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three have gathered together in My name, I am there in their midst. Or Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. I love this verse. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Such a cool picture. And if you've studied Revelation, you know the seven golden lampstands are simply a picture of the church. And Jesus is the one who walks among the churches, who is involved with His churches, who is where His people are. And if you want that closeness with Christ, commune with His people. Jesus wasn't lost. (laughs) They found Him in the temple in fellowship. And note this, Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, had spent the last three days there. Where did He sleep at night? I don't know. Did He just take a little mat in the corner of the temple? How did he eat? Not sure. Didn't really matter. He was in fellowship with, note this, the teachers. The word for teachers there, the Greek word is didaskalos. It's where we get our word didactic, which is authoritative teaching. Didaskalos, the master teachers. Jesus is seated, for three days mind you, in the temple with the master teachers of Israel. 
The guys who knew the book, who understood the law, who expounded upon it. The ones to whom the rabbis went for their information. The master teachers. In Rich Mullins' song, one of my favorite songs that he ever sang, ever wrote, Boy Like, Boy like Me, Man Like You. He says, I was 12 years old in the meeting house, listening to the old men pray. I was trying hard to figure out what it was that they was trying to say. And there you were in the temple. They said you weren't old enough to know the things that you knew. Twelve-year-old Jesus with the master teachers. Because you'll always find Jesus communing with believers. But why was He with the master teachers? Because if you're looking for the company of Christ, you will always find Him in the counsel of the Word. In communion with His people and in the counsel of the Word. Where the Bible is taught. Where the Bible is shared and discussed. Where the Bible is open. You're going to find Jesus there. He said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, we read last week. I came to fulfill. He went on and said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments... And whoever teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because the Bible is a big deal to Jesus. Still is. Always has been. Why is he so into the Bible? Because it's his word. This book is Jesus' book. He said in John 14:23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. I tell people the first thing you do when you're feeling absent from Christ is open your Bible. Get back to the Word of God. Be in communion with believers, but find yourself in the counsel of the Word. You will find Jesus there. Jesus said, He who does not love Me does not keep My words. And the Word which you hear is not Mine. It's the Father's who sent Me. The counsel of the Word. But did you notice his 12-year-old attitude? It even describes how he is with these master teachers. He's not impertinent. He's not a precocious child. The Bible tells us Jesus was listening to them and he was asking them questions. (laughs) The God of the universe in the body of a 12-year-old is listening to these master teachers, these humans, and asking them Questions. Why? Doesn't he know? Well, I can tell you why Jesus asks questions. But before I do, note that the very model of a humble young man is before us here. I would say this to our teenagers. In fact, I originally wrote in my notes, teens, listen up. And then I realized, no, no, everybody, listen up. If you want to grow in the truth, Jesus gives us two leads here. Humbly listen and honestly question. Get in the counsel of the Word. Humbly listen, especially to those who are teaching the Word. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hearing matters to God. Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the hero Israel, it's called the Shema, one of the most important songs or prayers or scriptures of the Hebrew people. Hear, O Israel, listen up. Humbly listen. 
if you want to be in the counsel of the Word, and honestly question. See, God's not afraid of your questions. And bug Him in the least. You can ask. He wants you to. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So honest questions in the counsel of the Word are fair game. I've always felt that way. I feel very strongly about that. You need to be able to ask the questions. And, and those who are a little afraid, afraid to question the Bible or question the words contained within, listen, you can't destroy the truth. You can't mess it up. Because the truth is the truth. It is unchanging. The Word of God is absolute. So you can look at it and you can question. And you can pray about it, And you can peruse. Now, granted, you can dilute the Word. People do that. You can take a detour from it, but you can't destroy it. Because God's Word cannot and will not be undermined. It will remain. Every aspect of it. And Jesus said in John 8.31, If you continue in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But this brings me back to the original question. If Jesus is God, why was He asking questions? Why was it? Clearly, the secularist might say, the, the, the non believer might look at this and go, clearly, as a 12 year old, he didn't have it all down yet. He's still learning. So he still wasn't quite there in terms of understanding. It's that old movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, a horrible movie, really badly acted and everything else. But where William Defoe, playing the part of Jesus, is beginning to realize that he's God, even as he's teaching. You know, he's getting these aha moments. And he just plays it like a moron. And that's not Jesus. And he's asking questions in the temple. Why is he asking questions? Because question asking is a tool of a great teacher. That's what the teacher does. That's what Jesus always did. Matthew twenty two forty one. while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Did Jesus not know? Whose son the Christ was? Of course he knew. But they said to him, Well, he's the son of David. So he said to them, Well, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Is Jesus confused as he asks the question? No. He's teaching. He's teaching the Pharisees. He's drawing. He's trying to draw out faith. If there be any faith there... He's asking the questions. Of course, the greatest question he ever asked, Matthew 16, 15, who do you say that I am? What, Jesus, didn't you know? It's like that recent Rihanna song, what's my name? Don't you know? We were sitting in Toppins last night with the kids and this Rihanna song is playing in the background. She's saying over and over, what's my name? And every time she said that, Cheryl said, Rihanna. Don't you know? Of course he knows. Jesus is ever the master teacher. He wanted his listeners to learn for themselves. And so he asked questions. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the boy Jesus is intentionally in the temple teaching his word. That's why he's there. I don't believe Jesus was there to learn. He was there to teach. Now he did it humbly. He did it respectfully. Again, he was not precocious. But he was teaching. And all who were listening were absolutely amazed at this 12-year-old's words. 
had everything he had to say. Why is he in the temple teaching his word? Because Jesus is always all about the commission of the Father. The commission of the Father. You'll always find Jesus in the communion or in communion with believers. You'll always find Jesus in the counsel of the Word, and you will always find Jesus about the commission of the Father. Look at verse 48. Here comes Mary. When they saw Him, they were astonished. And His mother said to Him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Is that not the right you know, way that a mom would say this? What have you been doing? Okay, verse 49, he said to him, to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Mary says, in essence, your father and I have been worried sick. And Jesus quickly counters Mary's wrong assumption. Your father and I, he says, I had to be in my father's house. Joseph's not my father. He, he's been a good dad, you know. He's been there for me. He's, you know, raised me up. He's kept the law. But Joseph is not Jesus' father. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I had to be in my father's house. Literally, I had to be in the things of my father. That's what The word house is not there. Literally what Jesus says is, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in the things of my Father? No disrespect, Ma, but Jesus is indicating the family business, which He would soon take up, was not carpentry. It was the commission of God, His one and true Father. Didn't you know where I'd be? It's another teaching question. Didn't you know? Think about it, Mom. What do you know of me? Now, think seriously about the question. Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be about the things of my Father? Didn't you know, Mary? What what do you know of my word, Jesus might ask? That says in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Okay, that wasn't written yet. Alright? What about Psalm 40, verse 7? Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. What do you know of my word? Jesus might say to Mary. Didn't you know? Don't you understand? In verse 50, we're told. But they did not understand the statement which He made to them. And He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them as a good Jewish boy. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. The thing I like about Mary is she's a processor. Luke makes this statement a couple of times that she treasures or ponders these things in her heart. Mary's a thinker. She doesn't understand what he says. Didn't you know? Mom! Think about the last 12 years. Think of what you know of me. Think about what the Word says. Do you remember what the angels told you? Don't you know? Don't you understand? I have to be about the commission of my Father. You should know this. And Mary's like, what? I don't, under, I don't get it. Mary said, and, and Jesus, that's okay. He would continue to gently teach his mom. 18 years later, at a wedding reception in a place called Cana, 
We're told in John chapter 2, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? Now, it was a respectful term, gune in the Greek. It wasn't, you know, woman. I mean, he was being respectful. But he says, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, what is Mary thinking? Why is she drawing Jesus into this? Because she knows He can do something. This is His first miracle. Mary has not seen Him do a miracle, according to Scripture. But she knows He can do something here. She's know, she knows something about her son. Go back to the 12-year-old question. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's things? Didn't you know this? Apparently she didn't yet. 18 years later, she knew... She knew more about Jesus than she knew previously, and she knew He could do something. But she does not realize, not yet, that it's not about what Jesus can do, it's about who He is. So she knows He can do something, but she still has yet to get who He is. And please hear me on this, until you know who Jesus is, you're not going to understand what He does. Until you know who He is, you're not even going to get what He says. And so Mark chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, and this is after this wedding feast in Cana, Mary knew He could do something, asked Him to do something about the situation. After the fact, it says, when He came into a house, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, and the crowd gathered again, they gathered to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. When His own people heard, that would be His family, they went out to take custody of Him, for they were saying He has lost His senses. He's nuts. He's lost his mind. He's not even eating. All these people around. This is not good. Luke 8 verse 19 tells us later on in his ministry, his mother and his brothers came to him. And they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mom's looking for you. Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you, the Scripture says. But he answered and he said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the Word of God and do it. That's my family. These are the people to whom I have come. But all of that teaching, Jesus simply teaching Mary in these instances, helping her process not what He can do, but who He is. Through all of this teaching, it all goes back to the very first leading question of Jesus. Didn't you know I had to be in the things of my Father? That's where it started. What things? The communion of believers. The counsel of the Word. The commission of God. And in these things, Jesus, well, Jesus grew up. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. few familiar verses here, and there may be one not so familiar. Verse 15, John the Apostle says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, note this, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... 
the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now skip over to chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Just two verses here. Verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, or seen in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that, and you might want to underline this, we might live through Him. Why did Jesus come? So that we might live through Him. Go down to verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? Go back to Luke chapter 2. Because in this, I believe, we have the most significant reason this story is included in the Scriptures. Things we learn about Jesus and understand are marvelous and it's beautiful and it's so cool to see Him at work. Working with and questioning and teaching the Master Teachers. Teaching His own mother. But I believe there's a stronger reason, a more personal at least, reason for this story to be included in the Scriptures. Listen to Luke's final description of Jesus' young manhood before we see Him later as an adult. Verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that word in the Greek for increasing is increasing. That's not filled to the full. It's a different word here. He kept increasing. It's prokopto. He kept prokoptoing. <laughs> What does that really mean? Listen, earlier on I said in His humanity, Jesus' deity was always full of the grace of God and the wisdom of God, the truth of God. But listen, as a human being, He kept increasing. As a human being, Jesus increased. Prokopto. It means to lengthen out by hammering. It is a phrase that is used specifically for a smithy forging metal. If you can imagine a, a, a hot piece of metal that becomes soft as it's heated up and that smithy is pounding it out and with every pound the metal lengthens, the metal increases, the metal grows. What does it mean? It means Jesus grew up. It means Jesus in His humanity increased. As we read in Isaiah 53.1, He grew up before Him like a tender shoot. Jesus grew up. He increased in wisdom. That is intellectually. He increased in stature. That is physically from a a baby to a man. He increased, the Bible tells us, in favor with God. Spiritually, He increased. And He increased in favor with men. That's socially. In the community. Does that mean that Jesus lacked any of these things? No. Not in His deity. But in His humanity, He grew up. Why is that significant? Here's the point. As He is, so also are we in the world. He is the model for our growing. He is the model for our humanity. We are not deity. We will never be deity. 
He alone is humanity and deity all wrapped up in one. And in His deity, absolutely perfect and filled to the full in all the things of God. But in His humanity, He emptied Himself, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, and became a man. And increased as a man increases so that we can grow up like Him. That means spiritually, intellectually, physically, and even socially, we are to grow like Jesus. And that's why the story's here. That we look at Him and we see Him growing in all these things and say, okay, that's the model. That's the pattern. That's how God wants me to grow. Paul put it this way. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is, Christ. Jesus grew up. And guess what the message is for us at the beginning of 2014? Grow up. Grow up in Christ. This is a chance for us to start. Perhaps you've been, uh, you've been still in your growth. Uh, you've been remiss in your growth. You've been wondering where Jesus is. Grow up. And I don't mean that as a negative. Grow up in Christ. Grow up spiritually. Grow up intellectually. Grow up socially. Grow up physically in all the things that are Christ-like. And sometimes that means you've got to leave the caravan. Sometimes it means you've got to retrace your steps. You need to go back to temple. You need to search out the Lord. Whatever it takes to pursue Jesus. Because to grow up like Christ means that we are in the company of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up together. So this has happened to me before. In fact, I think I've shared it with you before that I've awakened in the middle of the night. And last night as I lay there awake and and thinking about, really my mind kind of turned to today's teaching and and I asked the Lord, do you want me to revisit something? Is there something you want changed and all that? And He just kept saying, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 3. And I lay there putting it off for the longest time. I reached down, grabbed hold of my Kindle and pulled it up, turned the little light on, and found Ephesians chapter 3 and began to read. Let me, let me share with you what, what I came to. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that, listen, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He wants us to grow up so that He might fill us up with His fullness. And my prayer is that that will be our experience this year. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I challenge you this morning to give that some serious thought. And maybe you in your heart are sitting here going, I want to be around this Jesus. Well, then I invite you to keep coming. But if you're in a place this morning where you're thinking, I want to give in my life, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that while we pray. But there is one last thing I want to tell you all. 
and it's something God's really put on my heart. I was going to share this with the elders this week. We've got to be, I think, a little more intentional about baptism. And we need to talk about it a little bit more. I want to see more of that taking place. Because it is a critical thing that once you give your life to Jesus, that you respond to Him in obedience and He asks us to be baptized. And there, there are several who have followed Jesus a long time. Brothers and sisters in this fellowship who've never been baptized. You need to be. And you're thinking, I know, the pond is cold. We can get a hot tub. It's not a problem. <laughs> Trust me, there, there are a couple very close here. But I want to throw that out to you. If you've never been baptized, let's get it done. And soon, talk to me about it. In the new building, that's one of my first projects, is to make sure that we have a baptistry immediate and available so that we can do that. Believe in Christ. Be baptized if you have yet to be. And let's be filled up to the fullness of God. The Father in Heaven, we come before You this morning acknowledging Your words, recognizing the growth of Your Son, both the fullness of His deity, but also the increasing growth of His humanity. How marvelous. How amazing. We ask that we, like Jesus, would grow. That we would grow up, Father, physically. That is, living lives in a physical way that are honoring to You. That are righteous and pursuing holiness. Using our bodies, Father, not for our own pleasure, but as temples of the Holy Spirit. We pray we would grow up socially, Lord communing one with another in this body, in small groups, in fellowship with other believers, knowing, Jesus, that you're there. We pray we would grow intellectually, that we would set our minds on the gospel of truth, that we would have our souls washed constantly with the water and the word. And we pray, Father, that we might grow up spiritually, that our spirits would increase with the presence of your spirit, Lord Jesus that we might grow like you did. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus for the first time this morning, please just pray in your heart after me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need salvation. And I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you came among us fully God and fully man. I believe you died on the cross to take my place. You rose again from the dead and that you live forevermore. And I ask You to save me and to become the Lord of my life, to enter my heart today. Believers, would you pray this after me in your hearts to the Lord. Father, fill me up with Your Spirit, Lord. Fill me with Your Spirit to the fullest that I might know You better and walk with You, be connected to You, trusting in You. Lord, take my life. Let it be of use to You and Your kingdom. Until you come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.